Well, expectations are something that we're all familiar with. We deal with our expectations and the expectations of others every single day. And I think most of us would agree that they're an unavoidable part of our lives. There's no escaping expectations. And if you were to stop and think about it, I'd be willing to bet that you could come up with a long list of expectations. Maybe expectations that you have for yourself or maybe your spouse or your kids, right? We have expectations of businesses. We expect a certain level of customer services service. Employees have expectations of their boss. Bosses have expectations of their employees. We even have expectations of church and God. We have expectations of how our day is going to go, how the week is going to go. We certainly have expectations of how we want the holiday season to go as well. Our expectations are virtually endless and there's no escaping them. You are I also well aware that expectations take on many different forms. There are times when our expectations are conscious, meaning we are well aware of the expectations that we have. And then there are times that our expectations live in our subconscious. We don't realize we have a certain expectation until that expectation is violated, right? And then, seemingly out of nowhere, you feel this strong emotion or a strong reaction to something that has taken place. And perhaps you're even surprised by that a little bit because you didn't know you were expecting things to go a certain way until they didn't go the way that you really wanted them to go. Right? Subconscious expectations. There are times where we have expectations that are spoken. We've expressed our expectations to others, or they have expressed their expectations to us. And then there are other times where our expectations are unspoken. And it's not that they don't exist, it's just that they haven't been shared with anyone else. And all the married couples know exactly what I'm talking about with this one. Because everything is fine and dandy until boom! Someone didn't say something or do something, and and someone then is left dumbfounded while the other person is frustrated, upset, angry because there was an expectation that was not met. Now, if you're married, do not raise your hand, but just wink at me if you know what I'm talking about, right? you You guys know. You guys know. Now, Aaron and I have never been in this particular scenario whatsoever. So I simply cannot relate. Is she in here? I cannot relate. Um, So I don't know what you guys are experiencing. But once that storm has passed and you begin to dig a little bit, you realize that there was an expectation that had never been shared and yet someone was being held to it. And then there are times where we have realistic expectations meaning that what we expect to happen or to take place is within the realm of reason and possibility. And then there are those times where we have unrealistic expectations where whatever we expect to happen is simply not very likely. Now, i got to tell you guys, the majority of the time, Pastor Chris's expectations are fair and realistic. 
However, when it comes to the topic of manual labor or physical work of any kind, I got to tell you, the lines between realistic and delusional are a little bit blurred, right? They're a little blurred. He has a knack for expecting things to get done in a shorter amount of time than is realistic. Our church staff has experienced this from time to time, and it'll go something like this. Hey, gang. Why don't we all get together and we'll accomplish so-and-so, whatever that is, this project, in 15 minutes. Okay. And in working with Pastor Chris for the last eight and a half years, one thing I have learned about him is it's best to double or triple his expected time frame for a project to be completed. If you've ever been to Mexico with him, you may have experienced this firsthand, where at some point in the trip at the work site, he will begin to exclaim, Fourth quarter, fourth quarter, right? And it's this reference to the final period of a basketball game or a football game. And it's meant to be this encouraging message of, hey, we're near the finish line. Keep going. Let's finish strong. Let's keep working hard. But when he begins to say fourth quarter right after lunch break, you see, I just got to think, this guy doesn't know what we're doing. Like, does he not surveyed where we're at right now? <laughs> and, and I know we have hours left of work, and it's really only halftime. Now, maybe if there were 20 Chris Delphs on the work site, sure, then it could be the fourth quarter. But there are not, and it's only halftime. Sometimes we have unrealistic expectations. He's not here this morning. This is why I can say all this. <laughs> and I'm sure he won't listen to the podcast. So. In this passage that we're looking at this morning, we're going to learn about five men who had certain expectations of Jesus. And I'd invite you to turn in your Bible or your Bible app to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, that's where we're going to be spending the majority of our time this morning. Mark chapter 2. And I want to read the first few verses for us, verses 1 through 4. It says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there, were, there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat, the paralyzed man, was lying on. Now here in chapter 2 of the Gospel of Mark, it's fairly early on in Jesus' earthly ministry, but he's also accomplished quite a bit. And his, his popularity was beginning to grow, as evidenced by the crowds that were following him, and, and now this massive crowd that filled this house, both inside and then out, here in Mark chapter 2. And his word about Jesus spread across the region. There's these four men, and, and they heard about Jesus and what he was doing. And whatever it was that they heard about Jesus, it led them to wonder, maybe Jesus could heal our friend. Whatever it was they heard, or whatever it was you know, that people were telling them about, hey, I saw him do this, I heard him you know, teach this, whatever it was, it led them to ask, Maybe Jesus could heal our friend. If all we're hearing about Jesus is true, well, then this could be the best shot for our friend to get healed. 
And so it was this question, this, this belief, this hope, this faith that Jesus had the power and ability to heal led these four men to act. And they carried their paralyzed friend. We don't know exactly how far, but they carried him on this mat to where Jesus was. And unfortunately, by the time they arrived, they were probably one of the last ones to get there because they were carrying somebody. By the time they had gotten there, there was no way they were getting inside this house. They couldn't even get up to the edges of the house, really, because it was filled. And so they go to the back side of the house, and as was customary in this period of time, there was often a staircase on the outside of the house that provided roof access. And so these men proceeded to carry their friend up to the top of the roof, and then they dug a hole in the roof and lowered the man on a mat in front of Jesus. Now, for those of you who might be concerned about property damage, it's like, that's messed up, cutting a hole in somebody else's roof. That's not cool. Um, during this period of time, archaeologists have confirmed that, that in this region, there was really a, a, the roof was made of wooden cross beams and then a matting of, of branches and dried mud. And homeowners would have to replace the roof every fall to prepare for winter rains. And so it really was fairly easy to dig a hole in the roof, and it would have been fairly easy to repair this roof as well. And so this was the approach the men took to get their friend at the feet of Jesus. And so if nothing else, the actions of these four men carrying the paralytic showed this tenacious faith and determination. They believed Jesus could heal their friend, and so they were going to do everything they could to get him to Jesus. No obstacle, not having to travel, the weight of simply carrying someone along, the fact that there was no room in the house, or even that they had to cut a hole in the roof. No obstacle was too great to overcome. Let's continue reading to see what happens next. Mark chapter 2, verse 5. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, in verse 5 here, we see Jesus' response to this man being lowered from the roof in front of him. And if I'm being honest, I, I would have to say that, that Jesus' response to, to this whole situation is somewhat odd and somewhat unexpected. And I would also imagine that this was not the response the four friends who had lowered this man, this was not the response that they were expecting nor hoping for. I mean, put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. Can you imagine what's going through their minds when Jesus exclaims, Son, your sins are forgiven? It's like, uh, Jesus, we brought him to you so that you could heal him, so that you could make him walk. Why are you talking about forgiving his sins? We don't see the correlation here. We want him to walk. That's what we brought him to you for. We came expecting and hoping that you would heal our friend physically. And so I'm sure there was a fair amount of confusion at Jesus' comment. And maybe they were even disappointed. They were expecting this, but they got something completely different. Think about it. If you ever were to go to the doctor for a particular ailment, uh, hey, my knee hurts, my back hurts, shortness of breath, and your doctor looked you in the eye and said, hey, your sins are forgiven. 
what? Like, cool, doc. Um, here's the copay. I guess I'll be on my way. All right? Uh, that, that's just not treatment that we would expect. And, and I'm sure this is the paralytic or the, the friend's response to, to Jesus is like, that, that's not what we were, were wanting you to do. Now, while we don't know exactly what was going through the minds of the paralytic and the men who carried him, the Bible tells us exactly how the Pharisees responded to Jesus. Check out verses 6 and 7. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, essentially, the Pharisees are saying, no, 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 he can't say that. Only God can forgive sins. He's not allowed to say that. And the Pharisees are right. Only God can forgive sins. And so there's two possibilities here. Either one, Jesus is speaking the truth and would therefore have to be God. Or Jesus is a liar and blasphemer and one who is worthy of death according to Old Testament law. Now, blasphemy isn't a word that we use on a regular basis. I don't know about you, but I certainly don't. Uh, and it means to speak against someone or to harm one's reputation. And when a person claimed to have divine privileges, it diminished God's unique and exalted place by suggesting that a mere human could share his attributes. And so, Jesus' words here are either incredibly outrageous and offensive, or they're incredibly wonderful and amazing. Let's see how Jesus responds to the Pharisees in verses 8 and 9. It says, immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Now, first things first, that has got to be the most crazy experience for the Pharisees to get called out for something that was in their head but hadn't yet been expressed out loud, right? It's like, have you ever had one of those moments where you're like, did I, did I just say that out loud? Or you, you go back to someone and said, hey, did I already tell you? I can't remember if that was just in my head or I said it out loud. And now the Pharisees are being called out for something that was only in their head. They hadn't yet spoken it, right? That is something that would grab my attention. Don't know about you, but I'm like, okay, what is going on up in here? Uh, and so Jesus now has their attention. And then he asks them a question. Which is easier to say? You're forgiven or get up and walk. Now, when I first read that question, I'm kind of like both. Jesus, I didn't have any trouble saying either of those statements. You know, it's like you're forgiven, get up and walk. Boom, nailed it, did both. But that's obviously not what he's talking about here. And it, it sounds like this odd question. But the answer is that it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Well, why is that? Why is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? Well, because who could truly determine whether or not his sins were forgiven? You see, there's not tangible representation of his sins being wiped away. And it's easier to make the statement because it's difficult to refute. However, if you were told, stand and walk, this requires results. 
that everyone, this packed house and all those on the outside, can see. And if nothing happens, well, then you're shown to be an imposter. And with this statement, with his response to the Pharisees, Jesus is calling to mind the scriptural guidelines for identifying whether or not a prophet is truly speaking for God. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 and 21, it says, You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. And of course now, knowing that this is the standard for determining whether someone is truly speaking or acting on behalf of God, knowing this is the standard, Jesus doesn't stop with what's easy. Check out what he says next in Mark chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. He says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Jesus' response here, this direct address to this man who is paralyzed, it sets the stage. A decision is now before this man. What is he going to do? You see, the faith of his friends was on display already in that they carried him to Jesus and made sure to lay him at the feet of Jesus. They would let nothing stop them from getting their friend to this point. But would the paralyzed man have faith that Jesus could heal him spiritually and physically? Or would he believe the religious rulers who said, Jesus can't forgive your sins. He's not God. And only God can forgive sins. This particular story is recorded in a number of different gospels. And in Luke chapter 5, verse 25, it says, Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Without hesitation, he gets up and walks out, displaying the same faith of his friends that brought him into this house. The man gets up and leaves the house in full view of everyone, thus proving that Jesus is God and he has the authority to forgive sins. And all of this causes everyone there, maybe with the exception of the Pharisees, everyone there to praise God. God. Now, having worked our way through this passage, there are three truths that we really need to grab hold of as we study this passage in Mark. Three truths that we, we really do need to learn. And this first truth is that Jesus is God, and he has the authority to heal both physically and spiritually. See, he has the ability to heal our physical ailments, and that's evident, not only in Mark chapter 2, but throughout the Gospels, time and time again. Jesus heals those who are sick, blind, paralyzed, bleeding, dead, and he heals them time and time again. Scripture also makes it clear that Jesus can heal us spiritually. He can wipe away our sins and restore our broken relationship with God. 
1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so with these things in mind, with this truth in mind, we have to ask ourselves, have I experienced the healing that only Jesus can provide? Have I claimed that for my own? Have I experienced this healing myself? I would imagine that many of you in this room are hurting physically. Or if not you personally, you know someone who isn't doing well. And perhaps you've been praying for them, that God might heal them. And certainly we can and should pray for physical healing. Because God is more than capable of that. And nothing is impossible with him. Of course, our prayers do not always mean that God is going to bring about physical healing. One commentator writes, we should remember that physical well-being is not the essence of the Christian faith. It's not the essence of the Christian faith. And Paul's thorn in the flesh makes this clear. And this can bring up a heavy topic, maybe something that you've personally struggled with. And it can bring about questions to our mind of, well, why does God do this? And why does God not do that? I'm praying for two people. Why has this one been healed and this one continues to suffer? And there's so many questions that might come to mind in this particular realm or in this topic. And honestly, I don't know. I don't know the answer to those questions. I don't know why God chooses to heal some and not others. I don't know why some recover from cancer and, and some don't. All I know is that God's ways are higher than our ways and that we can trust him, that we can cling to the promises in his word like Romans eight twenty eight, which says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And while the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, or like the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, Jesus knows you need physical healing. He's aware of it. But he also knows that your greater need is spiritual. And while God's will for us may not always include physical healing, we know without a shadow of a doubt that his will for everyone is to bring about spiritual healing. He wants a relationship with God to be restored. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, he wants to make us a new creation. He wants to bring us from darkness to light, from death to life. And so have you experienced the spiritual healing that he offers? Because as Pastor Chris talked about at our Christmas Eve services, we all need it. We're all in need of a Savior. And all you have to do is to put your faith and trust in Jesus to receive it. And really there's no better way to finish out 2019, to conclude a year, to finish off a decade. And it sets you up well for a new year in which true transformation can happen. 
not because of New Year's resolutions, but because the healer is living in you. And so maybe you're here this morning, and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus to save you. And he's telling you, get up, take your mat, go home. He's asking you, do you trust me? Do you believe that I can save you, spiritually heal you? And if your answer is yes, then you're ready to accept that free gift of salvation he offers you. All you have to do is ask him for his forgiveness and commit to living your life for him, and then God's greatest desire for you will be fulfilled. The second truth I want us to learn from this passage is that Jesus is able to do more than we expect, ask, or imagine. And Pastor Chris reminded us of this truth last Sunday as well. He quoted Ephesians 3.20, which says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. You see, the, the men wanted the paralytic, their buddy, to be physically healed. That is what they were expecting to happen. That's what they were expecting Jesus to do. But their friend not only left the room on his own two feet completely healed, he was spiritually healed as well. See, our expectations of God may not always fall in line with his plan. We may expect him to do something or to not do something or to act in a certain way. But he doesn't always do what we expect him to do. And he certainly doesn't always do what we think he should do. And I get it. That can cause frustration and anger, questioning, disillusionment even. But it's in these moments we must remember the words of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And in those times when Jesus does do more than we ask or imagine, we need to respond like those who witnessed this miracle in Mark chapter 2, with praise and gratitude to God. The third truth I want us to learn from this passage here in Mark chapter 2 is that our faith should lead to action. Our faith should lead to action. You see, these men brought their friend to Jesus because they believed Jesus could heal him. And in Mark chapter 2 verse 5 it says, when Jesus saw their faith, when he saw their faith, Jesus didn't pull these guys aside and say, hey, let me talk to you a second and, and through dialogue find out that they had this belief in him and that they thought that Jesus could heal their friend. No, he saw their faith because of what they were doing. And then later on, the paralyzed man got up because he believed that Jesus could heal him. His faith led to action. And so... Like the men in Mark chapter 2, you and I, we need to live in light of our faith. And the question that we have to ask ourselves then is, where do I need to demonstrate my faith in Jesus through action? 
And if you're anything like me, it's probably multiple areas. But where do I need to begin to live out my faith in Jesus? I say that I believe him and that he can do all things. And, and if that's true, then where do I need to take action? Where do I need to begin taking steps in light of the faith that I say I have, that I claim to have? Perhaps it's in the area of your finances. And you've been holding on to everything that you think that you need because, well, if I give to X, Y, and Z, then I know I'm not going to make it. Or maybe it's with some relationship that's been broken. And you're to the point of, you know what, I'm just going to give up on it. This is beyond repair. Or maybe it's in the area of employment. You need a job or you need a new job or... Something isn't going well in the office. Or it's your health. Where do I need to demonstrate my faith in Jesus? Through action. What's remarkable about this passage, and I just love it, because from this passage, we also see that our faith should lead us to act on the behalf of other people. It shouldn't just be for me. So I can get my finances or my relationships or my whatever in order. I should be living out my faith for the benefit of someone else. These men carried their friend to Jesus. He wasn't going to get there on his own. They carried him to Jesus because they believed that Jesus could heal him. And so is there someone in your life who needs to be brought to God so that they can be healed. And maybe that means inviting them to church with you on a Sunday morning. Maybe that means working up the courage to tell them why you believe what you believe. See, as followers of Jesus, we have this responsibility to be a light to those who are living in darkness. Not so that we can heal them ourselves, but to expose them to the one who can bring healing. So how can you help others bring others to the one who can heal? As we close this morning, my hope and prayer for us in this New Year is that we'll have a faith that's similar to the paralytic and, to the, and the four men who brought him to Jesus. A faith that leads to healing both physically and spiritually. A faith that doesn't limit God, but expects him to do more. And a faith that leads to action. And if that's the kind of faith that we have in 2020, then you and I are able to have great expectation for what God is going to do in us and through us.